You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right, but then I did not just add a squalling infant to my family, so how are you doing this week? Uh, I'm doing okay, because the infant is so small, he can't really squall that loud. Okay. Sounds like kind of like the bleeding of a baby sheep. Oh, well, that's adorable. Yeah. Unless it's like 4 a.m. Maybe not adorable, then. He's also so small, uh, my, just to fill in everyone out there in listener land, my wife had a, a baby this past week, uh, six pounds on the nose when he was born, which is small for a newborn infant, and really small considering that both of our other children were uh, unbelievable honkers, I would call them, when they were born. So he's so little, he kind of needs to just eat and sleep all the time, and so far at least, overnight, uh, he's been a pretty good sleeper, because I think he's just harnessing all of his... Uh, his tiny energy into growing. Now, I heard that your daughter was really holding out hope right up until the end for her baby sister. She was. And, you know, uh, you've done this a couple of times. So, you know, that these days they can pretty much tell you what uh, what the sex of your child is going to be there. There's a blood test now. Usually they can uh, they can look on the ultrasound uh, and figure out pretty, pretty close what, what you're going to have. So we knew dating back a long time ago that we were going to have another boy. Uh, two, so our our full count of children is one boy or two boys and one girl. Uh, but my daughter was not trying to hear it the whole time, and uh, she was holding out for his sister. And then uh, on Saturday morning, when uh, I went to pick her up, she had stayed over at my parents' house, and I told her that she could come to the hospital and meet her new baby brother. Uh, her response was, "Well, turned out to be a boy, huh? <laughs> How about that?" Yeah, and I was like, "I know, I know." It's not what you were hoping for. I also, though, I heard one of her name suggestions, Baby Giraffe. And frankly, I feel like you guys, you overlooked that one. Maybe you dismissed that one too easily. Yeah, Baby Baby Giraffe actually originated with uh, my niece who lives out in Portland. But yeah, my brother texted me to say, if you guys are still hunting around for a name, you might want to consider Baby Giraffe because that's what what his daughter was pulling for. And instead Uh, you went with uh, Little Nick and Nate Diaz-Dundas, which I think was a great choice. That's right. My daughter was actually, so our older son's name is Fritz. And when I asked my daughter, Beatrice, who was the oldest of all of them, what should we name the new baby? She said, Fritz. And I said, how would that work? We already have a Fritz. How would we tell them apart? And she said, we'll name the new one Fritz Washington. All right. So there you go. She, she, I mean, she had this figured out. Yeah, you thought you caught her in a trap, but no, no. No, she uh, she has an answer for everything at four years old. I wonder I'm where sure, she gets it. As I'm sure you know how it goes. Uh, we just diving into this? Why don't we, we just dive ready in? Ready to go? This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by MMA Pack, the subscription box service just for MMA fighters and fans. We spent a few weeks telling you about MMA Pack now, and if you haven't decided to give the mail order service a try yet, man, I'm not sure what your major malfunction is. Just go to the website, MMAPack.com, sign up, and agree to pay $39 a month in exchange for $100 worth of assorted MMA gear 
the sheer economics of it just makes sense. That's right, Chad. The subscription boxes get mailed out at the beginning of every month, and this last month included stuff like a RevGear t-shirt, a Nuwaza hat, RevGear MMA gloves, premium MMA wraps, sheath anti-chafing underwear, which I know you're a big fan of, uh, Defend antibacterial soap, and glove odor eaters. Frankly, all kinds of stuff. And that's just one example. Every month, you can look forward to an assortment of select premium MMA gear, training equipment, supplements, and accessories. It's easy, it's cheap, and frankly, I'm running out of ways to try to convince you. Nobody likes chafing. No. Not in the nether regions. No. You gotta put your anti-chafing underwear on. That's right. And there's only so much, you know, fresh balls that you can throw on there. Is chafing a big issue? In the, uh, well, I assume it would be in the grappling? I mean, if you're on the mats for a couple hours, you're getting kind of sweaty, you're rolling around all over the place. Chafing is just not something you want to have to think about. I guess so. Uh, plus, as you probably know by now, MMA Pack is offering a pretty sweet introductory offer exclusively for our listeners. Just go to the website, MMAPack.com, that's exactly like it sounds, P-A-C-K in Pack, uh, to check out the particulars and enter the promo code, COMAINEVENT, all one word, and save 20% off your first pack. Again, just go to MMAPack.com. We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element. Uh, he's a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out on Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, at, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know, that's the letter A in the, the Fifth Element. I could hear it. Yeah. Three rounds this week, as usual, in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, on a personal note, to all the people who can't appreciate Daniel Cormier, when you get your academics in order, you can come back to the classroom. And in round number two, Chris Weidman, New York native, fighting for some redemption on a big stage in his home state. What could go wrong? And in round number three, the UFC is back on the Fox Network this weekend. And you know what that means. Spend this week figuring out how to pronounce Wilson Hayes, just to forget it next week. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Wilson Hayes. Is that right? Yeah, sure. I got pretty close, I think. It's confusing because your brain is already getting ready to do the Brazilian R when you start with Wilson. And so it kind of trips you up mentally. I guess so. First question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, Was the Key Bank Center built over an Indian burial ground or something? They had three controversies with UFC 210 that could have been the biggest in 2017 so far, but with all three happening, they all seem diminished. First, Cormier's weigh-in, which uh, honestly makes me like Cormier a little more, but he still did show up to a title fight overweight uh, and used shenanigans to quote-unquote make wheat. Then Pearl's implants somehow almost derail a somehow pay-per-view fight, which in the end uh, probably sold another 10,000 pay-per-views. Finally, Musasi's, uh, in parentheses, legal knees, and Dan's reaction to them, which was a disaster. Uh, has there ever been a card this weird before? Um, I assume that we will talk about the strange ending to Musasi versus Weidman in round number two, so maybe we can shelve that. Uh, but Cormier, Daniel Cormier coming into the weigh-in and possibly getting an assist from the towel, I feel like needs some comments and also, uh, the on-again, off-again, uh, nature of, uh, the Pearl Gonzalez against Cynthia, Cynthia Calvino, Calvillo, Calvillo, Calvillo? There you go. Yeah. Only took three tries. Cynthia Calvillo, um... We got to talk about that, right? Well, and the question of has there been a card this weird before? I mean, I'm sure there have been cards weirder. Like you've had, you know, some of those nights where just it seems like tons of bizarre stuff happens all on one card. But this one, all of the weird stuff 
kind of goes directly back to, like, can fall on the shoulders of the athletic commission. Right. So it's not really so much weird as it just seems like you had an athletic commission that wasn't totally sure what it was doing, and that, in turn, affected all these weird outcomes. Yeah, and again, as a, you know, it's New York, right, which just uh, became the last state in the nation to uh, sanction mixed martial arts not too long ago after a highly publicized fight to uh, legalize the sport there. Uh, so I guess you could understand if New York was still working some of the kinks out on one hand. On the other hand, it is a major state, and we would like to think a major athletic commission, and it's clearly the UFC has made such a big deal out of it that it seems like the plan is to make New York State a big uh, destination for the UFC moving forward. Uh, and some of these mistakes or, or gaffes, I guess you might say, you might say, and I'm thinking specifically about uh, Pearl Gonzalez briefly being pulled from the card for having breast implants specifically. But some of these seem like almost inexplicable and like uh, there's no explanation or or like uh, reason to make an issue of it. Yeah, well, that one especially because, all right, if that really was a rule that you had and you knew in advance that you had that rule, seems like there were plenty of opportunities to bring it up. Uh, you know, you do, how does that only come up the day before the fight? Right. It's not like Pearl Gonzalez ran in, ran out and got some plastic surgery. Right. It's not like she was like a super late addition to the card or something where you couldn't, you know, it's not like she got added on Friday. Like you had plenty of opportunities to to see if that was going to be an issue or not. So, yeah, I I don't know how that happens. Um, Also, it just seems like maybe it's because we in our heads, New York seems like an important place. And so we just assume, all right, they must have an awesome athletic commission. Like, if this happened, if it were like the Minnesota Athletic Commission or something, a part of you would be like, yeah, okay, sure. You don't do too much of this. It's kind of the big-time stuff. Maybe you're not totally ready for it. I mean, if it happened in Montana, there would be no athletic commission. So, you know, you're used to that from smaller states. And for some reason, you go to New York, and it's just surprising that they don't seem to know their own rules better than this. Yeah. And it comes up again in the, you know, the the ending of the Musasi uh Weidman fight as well. For sure. Yeah, and to me like part of the story or the thing that exacerbates the story is that the UFC fought so hard to get in there, right? Like right. because that was such a big story in our uh bubble inside our little world, uh and the UFC like basically made a point of talking up New York, like, oh, it's this huge destination for us, Madison Square Garden. It's going to be, you know, our home away from home outside of Las Vegas, essentially. Uh, and now we get in there, and it just seems like every time it almost gives off the vibe like New York is like doesn't give a shit about MMA, so it's just kind of winging it, right? Or to me, it does. That's one way to interpret it. Now, the Daniel Cormier, I, I know we'll talk about Cormier and, and Anthony Johnson. In round one, but the shenanigans. Yeah. A little bit of skullduggery, if you will, when it comes to the towel at the weigh-in. Right, yeah, and, and uh, I should have—I meant to say this at the top, but, like, obviously I was out having a baby for much of this UFC 1 or 210 weekend. In fairness, so I, you did not have a baby. I, I witnessed it. Okay. I, I witnessed it. Uh, trying to take credit for your wife's accomplishments again. There, She could not have made that baby without me. I mean, she could have done it with someone else, but it takes two to tango, my friend. You're really, it's the, your case is getting worse the more you talk about it. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I didn't witness a lot of this stuff live. Okay. So I'm coming in a little bit without the context of a lot of this. Uh, 
All I know is I'm in the hospital and I start getting a bunch of tweets from people about uh, Daniel Cormier's Dundasso, uh, which out of context is always awesome. I just start, <laughs> I just because that's the first thing I see, right, is my mentions, and then I start being like, "Oh shit, I wonder what happened." You poke something a commissioner happened. in the eye or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how how much of an assist can a 205 pound man really get from a towel? Like enough or like? Well, it, here's the interesting thing. If you watch the video of it, you know he's holding the towel, and then when he releases the towel, you can see the towel kind of snap back a little bit, which shows you, like, the tension that was already on the towel. Uh, and, you know, maybe if you need to just lean on it just a little bit, take off. I, you know, I tried this. It did my own experiment. Okay, did you film it for the speed bag? Uh, <laughs> not yet. Okay. I know you're, you're, you'll really be the first one to click on that one if I do. But just, like, on the bathroom scale, just try, like, leaning your hand a little bit on, like, a counter. Like, just leaning in on something else. And you'd be surprised how much of a difference you can make. Really? Um, I assume that this is, like, a... A known wrestler guy trick. I, that's, I read that on Twitter also. That like this is a thing that happens at wrestling weigh-ins sometimes. My question though is, you it would need you would need to get an assist from the guys holding the yes. towel, right? Who's yes, holding the would. towel? Is it athletic commission guys or is it like Bob Cook and Javier Mendez? Um, you know, all I remember specifically from the video was that when he when they say he makes the weight, one of the dudes holding the towel gives a fist pump. Like, oh really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. Well, that's uh. We might want to have some officials holding the towel. Well, we and, might and, want to have somebody picking up a salary to so, come out and hold the towel. Yeah, well, that's where it just seems like you you would want people experienced with p- the potential skull gu- skullduggery that might happen in a situation like this. You'd want them on hand to make sure, like that's what a commission is supposed to do, basically, is to make sure somebody doesn't get over on them with some of these tricks. Uh, and yet, I'm unsure how seriously to take it because I know some people, the people who really want to get on Daniel Cormier's ass and. I'm sure we'll talk more about this in round one, but a lot of people jumped on this like, hey, what a dishonest thing for him to do. You know, John Jones, of right. course, sees that opportunity, and why why wouldn't he, you know, given their history, uh, to be like, hey, if it was a dishonest move on his part, you know, what a, other people just calling him like a, a scumbag for taking off 1.2 pounds by leaning on the towel. And yet, like I said, Danny Downs and I talked about a little bit about this in the trading shots. If Conor McGregor had done this, People would be like, oh, what a wily move that was. Genius. Yeah. Everything Conor McGregor does is genius. Running the game just on some next level three dimensional chess shit out there, fooling even a scale. Even a scale must play by Conor McGregor's rules. What a genius move. Uh, what I like about it, and I know we will, we will talk more about this later in the show, but both John Jones and Daniel Cormier are, are, as they would say in the wrestling business, living their gimmicks at this point. Right? <laughs> yes. Like, I saw some people just getting mad about John Jones saying that Daniel Cormier, uh, had pulled off some dishonesty or whatever. Man, you know, John Jones is saying that with a half wink to himself. Yes. Like, he's not doing that. Uh, without understanding the irony of it. Both these guys fully know exactly what's going on here Yeah, uh, on all accounts. I guess we wrap up. There's a lot more we could say about this, obviously, with weight cutting and Daniel Cormier having weight cutting issues in his past and uh, missing the Olympics at one point, right? Because he had, like, kidney issues from trying to yeah, cut weight. Yeah, kidney failure. Uh, and whether or not we want these guys. So, like, whether or not that one pound that you got to kill yourself for to get into a title fight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but let's just wrap it up by saying co-main event podcast poll, Daniel Cormier using the towel to make weight. Awesome or not awesome? Kind of awesome. Begrudgingly awesome is yeah. what I would say also. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Matt Busby who writes, so after seeing Charles Oliveira dismantle Will Brooks in quick fashion, along with Kelvin Gastelum's recent run at middleweight, one wonders why don't more fighters compete at their natural weight rather than killing themselves uh, to be at the weight class below? 
been shocking, I thought, that Charles Oliveira comes out at lightweight against former Bellator champion Will Brooks in the curtain jerker of the UFC 210 uh, pay-per-view and wins by rear naked choke submission two minutes and 30 seconds into the first round uh, for a guy in Will Brooks that was well regarded uh, as an athlete and a competitor and like had a decent amount of hype coming over for Bellator into the UFC. Uh, kind of shocking to watch a guy who had been and also ran at featherweight come in uh, and beat him so quickly. Yeah, and muscle him around the way he did, too. You know, took him down, Will Brooks got back up, and then just hauled him up off his feet and right back down. And then, though, to turn around right after that and say, although it was not translated by the uh, in-cage translator, that he intends to go back down to featherweight and be a champion there, you'd think you just went in there and muscled up a, a lightweight pretty good. Shouldn't that be proof to you that you don't need to do this? And it is a good question, I think. Like, why... Why don't people seem to be getting that message? Even the guys where their careers, the trajectory of their careers is trying to hammer that message into their heads and they refuse to get it. I don't know. I mean, I guess some of it is just the culture of the sport, like the same way weight cutting is a part of the culture of the sport where people just think, like, all right, I should get down as low as I can humanly go. And then I will either have an advantage or at least I will just not suffer a disadvantage because I believe everybody else is doing that. And I'm sure, you know, these guys are in the gym. They're going with guys from a weight class or two up at times. So they, they might have some idea like how I would do against bigger fighters. And maybe they don't think that it works well for them. But after something like this, shouldn't you at least entertain the thought of a run at lightweight? Well, for Charles Oliveira, yeah, you would think so. You come in and you smoke Will Brooks like this. Uh, you weren't getting much done at, over at Featherweight, to be honest with you. Uh, it seems like making a run at lightweight might be attractive to you, even though we regard lightweight as the most competitive weight class in the sport. Uh, and I think you're right about the weight cutting. That A lot of it is just cultural that we've convinced ourselves that this is the thing you do. Come in and uh, you know get down as low as possible to try to have a size and strength advantage over everyone else. I guess the overall point for me is that everybody is kind of different. Everybody's bodies is, is going to be different. Everybody's going to react differently to that weight cut. So for for some guys, cutting down... Uh, in weight might be a huge advantage. I would just throw out John Jones perhaps as the most obvious example of a guy who, when you see him in person, uh, is just freaking enormous. And, and, you know, we'll see again if he fights Daniel Cormier coming up here later this year that he will most likely enjoy an enormous size advantage over the five foot 10, five foot 11 Daniel Cormier. Uh, and so for John Jones, that seems to be working out great. Uh, though he has talked about getting older and, and maybe not wanting to do the weight cut anymore. For other guys, uh, maybe like Cowboy Cerrone, maybe like Charles Oliveira, we see them perform better, uh, at least in the short term, when, they, when they're closer to their natural weight at, at higher weight classes. So I think uh, it's going to be different for everybody, just in terms of how they react and which weight class is better. Uh, but I do feel like there's a conventional wisdom kind of floating around that uh, at this point, uh, it's worthwhile to question, especially since, uh, you know, when we find out more and more about the science of weight cutting and, and how it's bad for you and exactly, you know, how, uh, cutting a bunch of weight and then getting punched in the head a bunch is, is, you know, only makes everything worse. So not to mention, we've talked before about the change of weight classes at times being the fighter's false friend. If you have like a failed run at the title in one weight class, you just keep dropping, uh, divisions going down, 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 killing yourself more and more and more. Maybe some of this success suggests you run into that same issue. Consider going up. It'd be a lot easier for you. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Anthony Oilcheck, which I assume is not his real last name. Or maybe it's just a phonetic spelling. Maybe he went phonetic. Who knows? 
He writes, so UFC 210 had more drama than a Kardashians episode, so you gentlemen will have plenty to talk about this week, but can we quickly reflect on the awesomeness that was Cynthia Calvillo's performance, complete with pre-fight Diego Sanchez scowl, post-fight Nate Diaz quotes, all kinds of kicky, punchy, choky goodness in between. Seriously, she busted up a Golden Gloves champ with some crisp one-twos and some sneaky uppercuts. Her stand-up is wild but effective, and her ground game looks like trouble. Three exclamation points. That triangle at the end of the first was prettier than the California kid's smile. If she did a sh- uh, if she did show a weakness, it was the wrestling department. Too bad she's not at a camp where she can sharpen that up. What's next for Calvillo? But more importantly, is she trying to be one of my guys? Please, discourse. I get a little bit of... Uh sarcasm in there about yeah. the camp to, to sharpen up the wrestling yeah and then can she be one of my guys anthony anthony Olchek is making it happen here. yeah he's he's doing a lot with the time he's been afforded <laughs> yes on the I, I appreciate that uh you know yeah it did seem like night really couldn't have got any better for her you know she uh comes in there and as soon as she hits the mat with pearl gonzalez it looks like okay one of these people is definitely more comfortable here and uh that that is going to be a problem here shortly. And it turns out that it was. Then afterwards, she's not surprised, motherfucker. She's even in there, like, you know, correcting... Uh, in, Joe it, Rogan on which weight class we Yeah. Uh, and then said, maybe I'll be a bantam weight later on tonight, which I liked, because, like, she's gonna about to hit the buffet, and then you hit up the bar, I assume, is what that comment means. I mean, how do you not like this? The thing I wonder, Before though, we move on, you know what the best thing about her trash talk was? With the, like, quiet, nice person voice that she said it in. Where yes. she starts talking, she's like, oh, thanks, guys. You know, that's great. And you think you're going to get into a normal post-fight MMA interview where everybody's too motherfucking friendly. And then she drops, I'm not surprised, motherfucker. And you're like, <laughs> okay, here we here go. We go. Yeah. I like what we're doing here. The, the one concern that I might have is, we talked about this before, will the UFC recognize in her a, a potential for somebody that could be marketable and promotable for them. Because we've talked about the sometimes, especially with the women's division, the UFC only knows, like, it has eyes for one kind of fighter. Um, you know, Pearl Gonzalez definitely seems like she fit into that mold of that, right. that kind of fighter that the UFC tends to like to push among the women's divisions. Will they be able to see in Cynthia Calvillo? There's somebody that fans are definitely going to be interested in. Yeah, I was going to say, if there's one thing that I feel like the WME IMG era uh, has demonstrated, and I think if you didn't necessarily follow the sport behind the scenes and just watched watched the fights in the cage without a lot of context, you might not even know that the UFC had changed hands because the product has essentially forged ahead relatively unchanged, regardless of what's happening with the, you know, the roster and the layoffs at the home office kind of behind the scenes. But the one thing that I feel like a little bit differently that is happening now under WME IMG is that it seems like they have put women's MMA at the forefront every time they've gotten a chance to do it. There's been several events now where, uh, you know, they've, they've put a women's fight on TV or they've made it the main event when they didn't necessarily have to. And I think that's terrific. I think that this is a good example. This one does not stand out to you as a pay-per-view. Right. Yeah. Having Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Calvillo and and Pearl Gonzalez on this pay-per-view, uh, doesn't necessarily shape up as the kind of fight that you would imagine would make it on a pay-per-view card, but it turned out to be a damn good fight. And if you're going to try to make these people, you know, stars or, or promotable entities, you got to put them out in front of the people. You got to have people see them. So I think it's commendable that WME IMG is doing that so far. And so to your point about whether they'll, they'll see Calvillo as a person that they can promote, uh, I think she's still real green at five and no. You can see that in the cage when she's fighting, but, I feel like there's a little bit of room for optimism that they're that the uh, 
that we'll, we will see the, uh, a bigger tent, so to speak, for uh, women, which women's fighters and what kind of women's fighters get promoted. Uh, just because WMEIMG, I feel like, is ma- taking the opportunity to put women's MMA out there at the forefront as much as it can. At, at least that's what it seems like to me. And I think you're right about Pearl Gonzalez. Like this thing, and essentially, like honestly, I came away from this fight feeling like they both did okay. Like that they both emerged from this fight better known and maybe with higher prospects than before. But before she lost this fight, I felt like Pearl Gonzalez, just because of the athletic commission snafu, and you know, casual MMA fan guy, when he sees fighter kicked off UFC 210 card for breast implants, yeah, he's going straight to Google to, to <laughs> find out what's happening. Yes. So, like, Pearl Gonzalez got a nice push out of this thing, too, and if she had won the fight, she might have come out of it, you know, even better, but at the same time... I feel like Synthony Calvillo and Pearl Gonzalez emerged from this thing as a fighters as fighters that I would like to watch do it again. I gotta imagine there's at least one MMA fan out there who has like a Google alert for like keywords including MMA and breast implants. And finally, finally, this was the week. It dinged in the inbox and thought, "All right, I knew, I knew my interests were gonna collide." Yeah, probably a, a depressing number. A depressingly high number. I was just imagining that one, just one just guy. One guy. All yeah. right. Next question this week comes to us from Patrick Bermel, who writes: Miles Jury just became one of my guys. Pretty sure he is one of Ben's guys. By the way, he jujitsued the fuck out of De La Torre. Uh, so Miles Jury comes out and gets a first round win on the UFC 210 uh, undercard. It was the, it was actually the featured prelim over there on Fox Sports One. Uh, three minute and thirty second TKO. That was again. Uh, pretty impressive for a dude in Miles Jury who at one time in his career felt like he had a lot of uh, momentum and then kind of dropped off the map for a while. And now here he is again. Yeah, I, I mentioned this on Twitter because I feel, I feel like just watching the fight of Miles Jury, yes, he would be one of my guys. And then as soon as Miles Jury starts talking and like one of the first things he says in his interview is, I feel like us fighters are the best thing in the world. I'm like, nope. Sorry. <laughs> uh, permission to come aboard denied. Uh, so, but, now, yeah, my, yeah. but my, in the past, Miles Jury was a guy who it seemed like even when he was trying to be nice, he yeah, was no, like yeah, kind I mean, of insulting, right? He, well, no, it's not even that he's insulting, but just like it's just not the greatest interviews. Like he's also, didn't he beat, uh, he beat Gomi in Japan and then was like, hey, what's up? Let's have some sake. Let's party. And everybody was just like, oh, God, dude, please stop. Um, and I think he said something about Diego Sanchez, like tried to compliment Diego Sanchez yes. after his win at UFC 171 in a way that was like not really a compliment. Yeah, I think he talked about how easy he made it look right. against Diego yes, Sanchez. That's what it was. Um, yeah, so I mean, I feel like if Miles Jury were were struck mute by a witch's curse, then yeah, I, then I could really get behind Miles Jury because as far as you know, between the air horns in there in the cage, there's a lot to like about the guy. Last question this week comes to us from Eden Hazard, who writes, get this, are you paying attention to this? Okay. So Kelvin Grastelum uh, <laughs> yeah. is out of the Silva fight after being caught by USADA for smoking some of the good green. Of course, the ban is legit as it's part of the rules, but should marijuana be on the banned substance list in your opinion? Personally, I'd like to see the battle of pot versus Viagra discuss por favor. Yeah, we've talked about this before, that it just it does not seem like it's even worth it testing for marijuana. And I understand that USADA has 
more relaxed rules on that than what we saw in the past from a lot of the state athletic commissions as far as like what it considered in competition and out of competition and and stuff like that and you know the the level the threshold is supposedly pretty high so suggests that either he was smoking a whole lot or he was smoking fairly recently uh before the fight uh something like that so you i'm sure you can lay some of the blame there on kelvin gastelum as well but I just don't see why we even bother to test for it. No, I agree with you. It seems ridiculous that marijuana is on the banned substance list. And I say this as a devout non-marijuana smoker. Like if you're, if you're, I got to believe that a lot of these guys are smoking marijuana, uh, both recreationally and for pain management. Yeah. Uh, and if your two choices are smoke marijuana or get whacked out on pain pills, uh, it seems like smoking marijuana is probably the healthier option for yourself and for society. Yeah, well, and I think it's just uh, lifestyle-wise for a fighter, I think it works pretty well because, you know, you're you're in training camp, you're hurting, you're beat up, you're tired, you want to relax a little bit, um, but you also, you want to be staying home a lot of the time during training camp. You don't want to be out late at, at bars or something. Uh, the drug that is harmless and keeps you in front of the TV at the end of the day is not really the worst thing you can imagine for a fighter. And it's also, you know, hearing that the guy, like if he was smoking weed the week of the fight or something, I mean, would we care if he drank a beer the night before the fight? I certainly would not. Like, I No, just, we, w- we would celebrate him and make him a hero of the sport. Maybe give him a Budweiser sponsorship, right? I was told Shane Carwin used to, as like, kind of a ritual, would have a beer, if, if not the night before the fight, but definitely the week of the fight. Uh, and yeah, it's you're, you're right. It does not make you think any less of the guy or, or think that they should be testing for it or anything like that. So I don't know really why we're even bothering to test for marijuana. And it seems like it wouldn't have to be a big deal. Like you could you could just kind of stop testing for it and not mention it. Yeah. And the caveat to that, as is mentioned by the emailer, uh, maybe the flip side argument to this is even if marijuana shouldn't be on the banned substances list, it is on the banned substances list. And maybe if you're Kelvin Grastelum, uh, you should know that. And maybe right, don't but smoke the weed. The the difficulty is in knowing, like, it's on the banned substance list for in competition, right? But it's also, if you exceed the, like, 150 nanograms per deciliter, whatever it is, thing. Um, so it's not as if, like, you could say, like, hey, you should just know, don't do it at all. Um, but it's a tough thing to know, like, when am I over the limit for marijuana? And how long is it going to be in my system? I think that's the real difficulty of testing for marijuana in the first place is you're testing for a drug where we're saying it can be in your system sometimes and to some extent, but it's really difficult for you, the user, to know when you've passed that point. And now we get to find out whether or not Anderson Silva gets a stay of execution here. If like he'll be able to move on and go fight a George St. Pierre or another aging superstar, or are we going to feed him into the wood chipper? Well, the report that Luke Rockhold said he had accepted about with Anderson Silva, but didn't know if Anderson Silva would accept suggest wood chipper. Yeah. I mean, you could put the wood chipper on Luke Rockhold setting or turn it all the way up to Yoel Romero setting. Either way, little tiny pieces of Anderson Silva <laughs> flying off into your backyard somewhere. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Kelvin Gastelum gets pulled out of a fight with Anderson Silva. You mean Grastelum? 
Kelvin Grastelum. Yes, it's uh, it's informative. It's short. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, second verse, largely same as the first for Daniel Cormier and Anthony Johnson, who did the damn thing in the main event of UFC 210 this weekend, uh, ultimately ending in a second round rear naked choke victory for the champion, Daniel Cormier. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues for discussion here, obviously. Uh, you know, Daniel Cormier beats Anthony Johnson much the same way he did the first time around. Anthony Johnson announces his retirement in the cage after it's over. Daniel Cormier gets up in the business of both Jimmy Manua and John Jones following this fight. Uh, where do you want to start? You want to start with the actual fight? You want to start with Daniel Cormier seemingly embracing the fact that uh, people boo him? What's the most interesting thing to you here uh, moving out of UFC 210? Let's start with the fight itself, especially Anthony Johnson's perceived strategy right which was rem going in this remarked fight. upon by the ufc broadcast team as being somewhat strange uh remarked upon by his own corner as being strange to the point of being frustrating yeah and i think that's right although uh you know as the fight is happening i figure i could maybe see a strategy on anthony johnson's part that is let's go out there and put daniel cormier on his back and see what he can do since nobody really does that to daniel cormier as misguided as that might have been as a strategy it feels like one that would not have come totally from the outskirts of crazy town to me but then you find out as you said later his corner uh considered what he was doing to be wrong-headed and frustrated that does uh raise questions about what exactly was going on out there and uh Anthony Johnson is a guy who has not always responded that well when the lights are bright and when things get rough. And uh, he did get punched in the face pretty hard right off the bat in this thing. So uh, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but it was uh, surprising to see Anthony Johnson try to wrestle the former Olympic wrestler uh, Daniel Cormier when Anthony Johnson's perhaps biggest, best, and arguably only uh, like outstanding attribute is his punching power. Right. And here the corner audio here, and there's, we have a transcription of it on uh, MMA junkie and then from round one. And you can hear it, it's Henry hoofed and then somebody else in the corner and they're talking, um, take your time. Nice. Take your time. Don't take him down. Hoofed. Don't wrestle him. If you're going to go, go single. You don't have to wrestle him. AJ, just relax. Don't wrestle him. Get out of there. Get out of there. Uh, why is he wrestling him? This is stupid. Why is he wrestling him? Fuck it, man. Just get off the cage. Get out of there. Why isn't he listening? Oh, that, okay. Yeah, there you go. This is not what you want to, to hear from your corner in round one of your big title fight rematch. Right. And like, I think you can explain it in a lot of different ways. Maybe you feel like if you're Anthony Johnson, we're going to wind up against the cage. Perhaps I am better being the aggressor. Maybe I will, you know, be able to, uh, uh, you know, more economically use my somewhat notably suspect gas tank if I am more in control of things. Uh, but again, all of that is undermined by the idea that maybe his coaches didn't necessarily plot out this strategy. Right. Well, and I think maybe we wouldn't be paying as close attention to him with somebody else and under different circumstances because 
the whole thing, when you take the big picture here, he goes out there for what he said he had decided beforehand was going to be the last fight of his career, which is curious for a title fight. Um, but okay, let's take him at his word there. Say so he's decided it's going to be the last fight of his career Since against a guy who you know, kind of broke his spirits in the last fight. We could hear his coach screaming at him in the last fight not to give up. You know, he subsequently tried to explain that, that, hey, give up didn't mean what you thought give up meant. But still, come on. Uh, then he goes out there with the strategy that his coaches clearly did not put in his head. They're trying to talk him out of it. They're unsuccessful in doing that. He gets beat. It goes pretty much exactly the way the first fight went in a lot of ways. And then he, he retires and his coaches aren't standing there. He's looking for them, and they're not there. Um, it all kind of coalesces into kind of a narrative uh, that makes it seem like these dudes kind of know Anthony Johnson and are have had it with him at that point, and that maybe he's kind of had it himself, that maybe he just his head wasn't in this one. Yeah, and if that were the case, it would make Anthony Johnson a fairly uh, typical athletic story, wouldn't it? Like, uh in all sports, I feel like there are, you know, lots of examples of people where you can be like, oh, this person had all the tools. Like, this person was the best athlete. Like, uh, you know, this person on my high school football team probably could have played college football had he not dropped out of school like a semester before graduation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it just reinforces to me how many damn qualities it takes to be successful in this sport. Like we see it all the time, right? There, there are a million different ways to undermine yourself, short circuit, your, your possibilities and ultimately flame out. And Anthony Johnson's just happened to be that, you know, he didn't have the greatest cardio and perhaps like, uh, you know, nerves were a factor a lot for him. Um, and ultimately like if this is his last fight, if he does walk away, that's probably the story of his career that, and, and a guy that took a, a long time to figure out what was his, his best weight class, I think. Yeah. And the thing is there were opportunities aplenty for him in this fight, but then it also, I think we have to switch. He did break Daniel Cormier's nose, right? With, right. A, with and like yet, a kick. When he broke Daniel Cormier's nose and then almost took his head off with a follow-up kick. Cormier did not look the least bit concerned at any point during that. Right. Which I think says a lot about Daniel Cormier here. And he even, like, what did he predict beforehand? That it was going to take six or seven minutes or something? That's, you know. Yeah, they end up going eight and a half. Yeah. Just I, over eight and a half. You know, he, he seemed like he kind of had this one. Uh, and then, though, we might as well, I guess, switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, Daniel Cormier's night here. Because for one thing, I was really surprised to see him walk out to so many boos. Like, so many boos during the introduction for Daniel Cormier. Uh, where, you know, it's not like he was a huge fan favorite before this, but it definitely didn't seem like he was the kind of guy fans booed that much. I mean, they booed him after UFC 200 with that Anderson Silva fight because, hey, that was not a great fight. Um, but those were also weird circumstances. Uh, I don't know if it was the towel thing, the perceived skullduggery and shenanigans. I don't know if that was just an excuse uh, right. for some people. Um, but his reaction to it, like when Daniel Cormier is standing there talking about how they can boo him all he wants because he's getting getting checks and belts. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he's doing his basically high school wrestler thing on Jimmy Manoa and John Jones. I could not be more into it. No, I agree. And And Daniel Cormier, frankly, is all I want from a mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, and I've kind of felt that way all along. And I don't really... I don't agree. I don't agree with the uh, with the kind of uh, the negativity toward him that that has come along recently. But I do think I understand it. And and like obviously the turning point for Daniel Cormier 
is winning the title at UFC 187, his first win over Anthony Johnson, immediately on the heels of being defeated by John Jones at UFC 182, right? MMA fans immediately take that, like, as an affront to, to whatever uh, sanctity this sport may have, that you're not the real champion, you need to beat John Jones. And, you know, some of that is, is true, for sure. Like, I think we're all looking forward to seeing Daniel Cormier and John Jones do it again, uh, brother. And so I think you have that, kind of undermining Daniel Cormier's natural popularity. Then you have the fight against Anderson Silva. Then maybe you have, you know, some of the other quote unquote skullduggery that you mentioned uh, coming together to create this package where Daniel Cormier gets booed. And I think we should also note Daniel Cormier gets booed in John Jones's home state. And I don't know how many of the folks down there at the key center in Buffalo uh, were wearing their JBJ shirts uh, underneath their their jackets driven but, over from endicott you're yeah, saying it might have been a, a somewhat of a factor okay that's possible and i think you're right that there's the the idea that he's like an imposter champion and that he is clearly enjoying it so much that whenever you see him with a belt he's he's you know rubbing it like he's hoping a genie will come out of there right so i i think that maybe the way he has kind of embraced that and i think though has gone with it the exact way that anybody really would which is to be like hey john jones screwed up and now i'm the champion everybody can shut up and deal with it right uh and also just i love that he's his gimmick is basically like he's one step away from just walking around all the time in a tracksuit with like a towel tucked in under the neck um and like a clipboard and a whistle around his neck like he, we're, we're just a little bit away from just a full high school wrestler gimmick which is kind of awesome. When you say, get your academics together and yes. come back to the classroom, I, that's when I start searching online to see if you have any merch I can buy. You are, <laughs> you are like, you are that ensconced as being my guy. Uh, and that is true of Daniel Cormier at this, at this point. The other thing that I like about Daniel Cormier, like obviously he is doing this, he's embracing this, this role that nobody likes him as champion now, but we all know Daniel Cormier is just goddamn nice. Yeah. Behind the scenes. And he went on, he did the car wash, I think, over to ESPN this past week. I saw his interview on uh, the Dan Lebitard show that's on television, uh, that the name of it escapes me at the moment. But like, I watched it and I was like, God damn it, Daniel Cormier is just so good at this. Because like the thing of that Dan Lebitard, Bomani Jones TV show that has Dan Lebitard's dad on it is that like they will ask you questions that you don't expect that they like basically they're not going to do the normal sports guy stuff. And so they start asking Daniel Cormier about getting bullied as a child. And Daniel Cormier just was brilliant, frankly, like honest, funny, likable uh, all the way through. And I watched it. and I was like, God, this guy is, is such an asset, could be such an asset for the UFC. And then he goes out there on Saturday night, wins his fight and, and kind of uh, turns heel, as people say. Uh, I don't know, man. I'm just liking the whole package. I like the whole Daniel Cormier package. I got nothing negative to say about it, except I don't know if he beats John Jones. Yeah, well, and that'll be the interesting thing. I, I think it was smart to uh, have your backup plan, Jimmy Manoa, uh, the paper boy, sitting there at cage side, uh, and you got John Jones, so Daniel Cormier can kind of take turns talking shit to him both, and then whatever way the events of the future unfold, you're kind of covered. It's not a bad idea there. No, that, I think it... it uh... It went terrific. I, it went great for everybody. I don't know, man. Can you imagine a pay per view headlined by Daniel Cormier opposite the paper bro, the paper boy though? 
Jimmy Manoa. I, I think like, it better have gotta, a, a strong co-main event. Yeah, you better throw throw somebody that that the people are going to want to pay to see on that, or or you're not going to turn over too much too much money. Uh, do you want to do? Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw on the prelims, my man Gregor Gillespie goes out there and just starches Andrew Holbrook in 21 seconds. Did I? But then gets on the mic and seems like he really wants everyone to know that, yes, he's a very good fighter and very skilled at that, but he's also an excellent fisherman. Mentions fishing at least a couple times in the interview. Encourages us to follow him on Instagram because we're going to see some awesome fishing this week. Because, you know, once his fight's over, that's when he gets out the rod and the reel, gets out there and does some fishing. Uh, I go to, I knew, I do now follow him on Instagram. If you kind of scroll through the history, there's a lot of fishing stuff on there. Are you fucking kidding me? That's awesome. You fucking kidding me? I I appreciate. We were just talking recently about how difficult it is to stand out in the uh, the Reebok era when you can't do you know the Brad Pickett thing where you have your own kind of signature look, but they can't stop you from getting on the mic and talking about how much you love fucking fishing. No, they can't. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? And I know one thing Ben Folks looks for in a fighter is an entertaining Instagram presence. That's right. That will help get you on hashtag Team Folks. Uh, ben, as I said before, I viewed all of this UFC 210 stuff from somewhat a remove, a kind of out of context. I was distracted by other things. So this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the short-lived rumor or speculation that after announcing his retirement in the cage, Anthony Johnson was going to go play for the LA Rams? <laughs> I don't know how that started because, like I said, I kind of jumped in in the middle and I just saw people on Twitter talking about Anthony Johnson going to play for the L.A. Rams. I think it was just in his Twitter bio. Are you like fucking? Yeah, it said like hashtag L.A. Rams. Right. Are you fucking kidding me? You know where they they don't have trouble finding guys? The <laughs> NFL. They got guys trying to get in the NFL. More than enough of them. 33-year-old Anthony Johnson ain't wandering in for the L.A. Rams and... Playing safety. I don't know what Anthony Johnson would do, but are you fucking kidding me? It, it, to me, it illustrates like the sometimes disconnect between the MMA world and like the actual sports world where Anthony Johnson probably couldn't even get in the door at the LA Rams to like have a tryout. If he had put something in his Twitter bio about like how much he loved anime. Yeah, he's going to go voice anime movies, <laughs> as far as I know. Motion capture for, for Disney. I don't know. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Gegard Mousasi, the young vagabond, he and Chris Weidman had themselves a crackerjack of a fight right up until about midway through the second round when shit got weird. Now, it was a pretty good back and forth, and then Mousasi lands a couple knees, uh, at least one of which Big Dan Merigliata, the referee, thought was illegal. He stops the fight, uh, and then all hell breaks loose. What? I don't, where do you want to start here? First of all, what should have happened there? Well, it was a big goddamn mess, all things considered. Uh, I'm going to make 
the same point that I make. I feel like every time we have a discussion uh, where a referee or, or a, a you know, a con, uh, uh, an athletic commission makes an error, and that is we really do put these referees in an inhuman position. We, we give them a superhuman job because when Dan Mergliata looks at that exchange between Chris Weidman and Gegard Mousasi with his bare human eyeballs from maybe not a great vantage point inside the cage and in real time, there's just no way to tell if those uh, knees are, are legal or illegal. And it's not until you get the super slow-mo uh, close-up from the UFC's cameras that, that it looks like indeed Chris Weidman's hands or one of his hands come up off the canvas at the exact moment of impact. And even then it's close. Even then it's very close. And, and you know, you see both of them and, and I, I don't know that I ever saw an angle that made the that made both of them look conclusively legal. It's just a it's just a weird situation. And so uh I think one of two things needs to happen in this sport. Either we need to stop, you know, giving the referees this kind of uh unattainable job where they have to call everything exactly right uh in the moment as it's happening in front of thousands of people on pay-per-view or else the fight ends or we have to give them another set of eyeballs we have to give them uh some backup outside the cage uh and even then neither of those things is a quick fix and i don't necessarily know which one is right and or what would make the sport better uh i do know that that you know some of these rules that are that are all but unenforceable in real time, uh, you know, ultimately raise the question if, you know, we would be better off without them. Well, I think you're right that I think, uh, you know, the as soon as he steps in there and does anything, he has changed the outcome of the fight. Right. You're, you're already screwed. Like, even if they restart the fight, which they probably should have, uh, you know, you've already broken up the flow of the action. You've already given Chris Weidman a chance to recuperate. You've already given Musasi a chance to catch his breath. You've taken Musasi out of his offense, et cetera, et cetera. Like right, you've but already, it's still the lesser you've already, of two evils. Right, it's, it's between it's, restarting it and just saying, screw it, we, we messed up, and I guess we, we're just going to point to a guy and say he wins. I, I think like that's like the worst outcome that you can have there. I think it would be better. And you know, a lot of states have the instant replay in effect for just this kind of scenario. Uh, and it's curious here because when Darren Migliata stops this, it's because he thinks the knees are illegal. He warns Gegard Mousasi about the illegal knee while Chris Weidman is being attended to by the doctors. Then at some point, must have changed his mind about the legality of the knee because if you think they're illegal and the fight stops as a result of an illegal blow, that would be disqualification. Right. Um, but they I, I were think, told they don't have instant replay. Right. Work, I think right? what happened was Big John McCarthy approached the cage and told him uh, that they were legal blows and whether or not Big John saw him with his bare human eyeballs or whether or not he used uh instant replay and that's a loophole in the rule i just don't know how it works but i think that's how the exchange went that's where uh we went from the illegal knee to the legal knee right and then apparently when the doctors are talking to chris weidman that's when they start to have doubts about whether he can continue and according to the the corner audio there between uh matt sarah and ray longo they're saying he doesn't know uh they asked him like what day of the week it was and he wasn't no didn't know what month it was that kind of thing I mean, he didn't, you see him in the cage, he didn't seem like too out of it. And according to their audio, um, you know, he might not know what day of the week it is at any time, according to Matt Sarah, which mm-hmm. if yeah. you're a fighter, just always say Saturday. You got a pretty good shot, man. Yeah, either that or, or throw him a loop, ask him what time it is. Because <laughs> if it's after midnight local time, then you can say, oh, Sunday, Sunday now. There you go. It was Saturday. You're now, saying Sunday. answer the question with a question. 
Yeah, I'm saying throw a wrench in the whole operation. Okay. So the trouble is... That's a that Dasso move right there. In my opinion, Ben, you've got these rules that seem borderline unenforceable. And on top of that, it oftentimes seems not everybody even knows what the rules are. And well, this especially rule, when we changed them. Right, this recently. rule particularly was was just changed. And so you've got a, a a real monster of a situation here where on top of that, you've got this rule where as it's written, a lot of people will charge certain fighters in certain situations with quote-unquote gaming the rules or gaming the system. And I've seen some people say Chris Weidman was doing that here. Uh, and, and, you know, it just creates this this like no-win situation, man, where like if that's how the rule is written and you try to 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 play by the rules, I don't necessarily know if you're gaming the system and whatnot, but at the same time, I don't know if it's a great rule. It doesn't seem like a great rule to no. me. Well, and yeah, you're right. I, I don't understand when people are like, yeah, he was just trying to put his hands down so he couldn't knee him. Yeah. Yeah, he was because that's the rule. Right. Like, so he's trying to be like, okay, what can I do under the rules to make sure I cannot be kneed in the head here? I'll do that thing. Like, that should be a completely legitimate way to fight. And on the other side for Gegard Mousasi, be like, all right, if he has his hands down, if I jerk his hands up off the mat just barely enough before the knee lands, I'm in the clear. Uh, and so it does create, like, just a, you're asking for trouble with the whole situation. I mean, I, I would think they should do away with the hand making you a down fighter at all. It should be a knee. You should have to have at least one knee, I think. Uh, because, other, you know, if we get into this thing where, you know, your hand can come up or down really, really easily, and it's hard for the referee to tell, like, when he's looking down exactly if your hand is touching the mat or if it's just hovering just above the mat. I mean, that's just, that seems like a situation that's going to come up again and again. Right. There's got to be a happy medium between, you know, having your fingertips on the mat and allowing full-on soccer kicks to the face. There's got to be some, uh, you know, midway point that we can agree on. I guess... The pertinent question in this situation is what do you do now? Do you run it back and have this fight again? Because you have an additional layer of complication here in that this was the last fight on Gegard Mousasi's UFC contract. And before and after this fight, Mousasi has let it be known he wants to get paid. Yeah, he's trying to get that money. Which is understandable. And like I think arguably he deserves to get paid a little bit more than perhaps he is. But uh now you have an unfortunate situation for Chris Weidman. You have an unfortunate system our sister's uh, situation for Gegard Mousasi, a real heartbreaker really for Weidman. But uh, I don't know, man, do you try to run this back or, or what happens here? I think, I mean, I wrote about this earlier today that it seemed like either way it's a bad scenario because if you run it back, it, that kind of sucks for Gegard Mousasi. He wants to move on. He feels like he won the fight and he wants to get at that title. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting fights that can happen there at middleweight. I mean, I wouldn't, a rematch wouldn't be the worst thing that could possibly happen because it was a really exciting fight uh, right up until it stopped. But... I also think you can't really, it's unfair to let this loss stand for Chris Weidman under the circumstances. I think the best case scenario possible is overrule, you know, Weidman said, their camp said they're going to appeal. Uh, we all know how those usually go, uh, how, how usually fair when you ask an athletic commission to admit that it was wrong. But I, I would be all for overturning the result of that, changing that to a no contest, and then just letting both guys kind of move on. You know what the best part of any Chris Weidman fight is, don't you? What's that? Take it easy, Chris! <laughs> Take it easy! You got plenty of time! Settle in, Chris! You're breathing! Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall at Sal's famous pizzeria on Monday where the uh, Sarah Longo team gets together and breaks this one down? How many times do you think the word bullshit gets tossed out when they're discussing this fight? Over under 7 million. <laughs> and I would take the over. 
Anyway, uh, a bad situation for all involved, a seemingly ongoing problem in this sport with the rules and rule enforcement and, and what to do about that. I'm sure we will discuss this on and on into infinity, probably for the rest of our lives. Learning nothing. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. Ben, no customary three-week break between UFC events uh, coming up here as we roll straight out of UFC 210 and straight into next Saturday night's UFC on Fox card. The upside of which, my friend, is that this is a pretty goddamn good fight card to sit down and watch for free on network television. You got your flyweight championship on the line in the main event, Demetrius Johnson versus Wilson Hayes. You got a women's strawweight fight in the co-main, Rose Namajunas versus Michelle Watterson. Uh, and then you got, perhaps, the people's main event in the middleweight contest between Ronaldo Chakare Souza and Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whitaker. Uh, then Jeremy Stevens on the card, just for just for good measure, just in case you didn't get enough action. Uh, what are you looking forward to here the most? What do you want to talk about concerning this UFC on Fox card? I mean, for me, I'm coming to this party for Jacare and Bobby Knuckles, 100%. Uh, you know, the other stuff, of course, uh, Rose Namajunas and uh, Michelle Watterson, that's just a good fight. I'm, I'm excited about that one. Demetrius Johnson's ongoing campaign to fight every 125-pound man on the face of the earth. Sure, I'll, I'll sit down for the next installment of that. But Bobby Knuckles and Jacare is how you get me in the door. Yeah, that's going to be a uh, that's going to be a good one. We all know what Jacare Souza brings to the table, and then you got the young the young upstart, the 26 year old Robert Whitaker, who rolls into this thing uh, on like an eight fight win streak. I think uh, having just defeated Derek Brunson back in November in in uh, uh, a, a fight that you could play the Benny Hill theme during like if you watched uh, the highlights of it, which was a wild slug fest that ended up in a first round TKO win for Robert Whitaker. So uh, a fight that makes sense in a lot of ways. Cause you got Robert Whitaker trying to make his bones as an elite middleweight contender. And you got Jacare Souza who obviously ain't getting any younger at 37 years old. Uh, not necessarily just biding his time until he gets that middleweight title fight. Uh, but Certainly a guy who needs to stay on a roll if he's going to get the chance to fight a Michael Bisping type or whoever it is that inherits that middleweight title anytime soon. Uh, have you seen the odds on the main event here? I have not seen the odds, but I was going to ask you if this shapes up as a trap fight for Demetrius Johnson, since almost nobody in the world is giving uh, Wilson Hayes a shot at this thing. Well, the odds makers aren't giving him much of a shot. Demetrius Johnson going off right now at about an 8-1 to one favorite, so that's... That lets you know where their heads are at. Uh, I mean, I think at this point, almost any actual flyweight fight is going to be that same situation from Demetrius Johnson, where you know he, if he wins, it's just okay. He gets to to put another mark on the wall, move on to the next one. Uh, people get to decide if they care any more about it than they did the last time. If he loses, then it's kind of know a disaster you lose your title a, a huge upset all that kind of stuff that seems like though what he just has to get used to because at least until you know you get into one of those like uh 
cross-divisional fights like Cody Garbrandt or something coming down. That's pretty much what he's got from here on out. Yeah, and if you talk about a dude uh, who's a realist and a guy who seems to accept his situation, though maybe not altogether happily all the time, and a guy who has been able to keep himself motivated uh, at a point in his career where a lot of people might not be able to do that, Demetrius Johnson is that dude. Like He and Matt Hume out there in Seattle, uh, the sorcerer and the sorcerer's apprentice, just kind of uh, coming out looking better and better every time we see him. Uh, and Wilson Hayes is a guy who comes in on a three-fight win streak, uh, actually uh, five and one in his last six fights, which sounds super impressive in the UFC until you consider that uh, the names on the list are Joby Sanchez, Scott Jorgensen, Dustin Ortiz, Hector Sandoval, and Ulka Sasaki in that win streak with the one loss to uh, Juicier Formiga uh, back in May of 2015. Um, so we think that... that Wilson Hayes is the sacrifice here to Demetrius Johnson that Demetrius, is this Demetrius Johnson trying to tie or break the record for Anderson Silva consecutive title defenses? I think this would be the tie. I think that's why Cody Garbrandt said that he wanted to make him fight him for the, to break the record. The only thing I would say is if you've been around mixed martial arts for a long time, you know that when a champion rolls in for a low profile title defense against the guy that he needs to smoke, to then get on with the business of putting together a much more high-profile fight, in this case a cross-weight uh, class bout with uh, bantamweight champion Cody Garbrandt uh, as an 8-1 to favorite. Uh, this is where the MMA gods will smite you. Smote you? Smite you. Smite you. They'll reach down the pointy finger of the gods and, uh, and knock you on your ass. Whether or not Demetrius Johnson falls victim to that, obviously, uh, we can only wait and see, but uh, this is the kind of fight that, uh, as a longtime observer of the mixed martial arts, gives me a little bit of a queasy feeling. Yeah, I I, I can see why it would. You know, though, though when you look at it overall uh, for a UFC on Fox card, I like what we got going on here. You know, you got you got a title fight, so you can say that you have one, and obviously the UFC does not feel like it's sacrificing a whole lot of pay-per-view buys to put Demetrius Johnson on Fox. Um, then you also got, uh, you know, middleweight contenders fight. Uh, you got, again, like you mentioned, a, a high profile women's MMA fight. You got, you're kicking off with one that just seems like it's, uh, made purely so that somebody gets the whole shit broke on live network TV. This just seems to me like the blueprint for how you do one of these, uh, UFC on Fox cards. Yeah. Plus you got four fights in total. So, you know, you're going to roll in and out of this thing in a couple hours, which, uh, will be nice. It'll be, it'll be, we assume, uh, paced in the way that we're accustomed to these network broadcasts to be paced. Um, I can't find too many negative things to say about it. Uh, Rose Nama Yunus, Michelle Watterson, I think will, will, uh, produce a high profile straw weight contender. Obviously we're still looking for a person that can give Joanna Yajacek a run for her money, but, uh, uh, nothing to complain about there as you got a couple of high action fighters who are going to get together and, and, and do the damn thing. And, uh, in a contest that that is kind of like okay, both these people beat Paige Van Zant. Let's put him back on the national TV and and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about here with the uh, UFC on Fox, or uh, do you just want to do just saying stuff? Then we'll get out of here. Let's do just saying stuff. All right, that wraps it up for UFC on Fox 24. Ben, uh, since you watched UFC 210, I know that you saw Patrick Cummins uh, roll in with the sweet new mustache. And uh, couldn't miss it. You <laughs> couldn't miss it. Indeed. Uh, come from behind to get the uh, majority decision win over Jan Blachowicz. There you go. Nailed, Nailed it. it. 
Uh, and I've been espousing this for a long time, Ben, since the career, the, the college career of Adam, Adam Morrison in, as a college basketball player. And that is, I'm just saying, if you are kind of a mediocre, mid-range athlete in your sport, the best thing that you can do is grow a sweet mustache. Because then all of the media people will spend a lot of time talking about your sweet mustache. You will get a lot of free publicity out of it. And if you're lucky, you go up there and you beat Jan Blachowicz and suddenly you're back and you're Patrick Cummins and you got a mustache that makes you look like a, an English street tough from the Gilded Age. I'm just saying. It's a just, great move. Just saying. What about like a, like a weird goatee to make you look like you were the evil version of Patrick Cummins? Would that work too? I mean, it's not as effective as the sweet stash because okay. we have a lot of data at this point to support the fact that if you grow a sweet mustache, you'll get highlights on SportsCenter. Of draining threes if you're Adam Morrison. True. If you are Patrick Cummins, people will just make sweet jokes on Twitter, which is yeah. just as good. Do you want to look like a porn star with a mustache, or is that just like it sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't? Uh, I'm going to pretend like you didn't ask me that. Okay. I feel like that's an obvious question. <laughs> Always want to look like a porn star. Mustache or no mustache. Well, I'm just saying this week, Chad, we didn't mention it, but Patrick Cote called it yeah, quits after yeah. his uh, his decision loss to Tiago Alves at UFC 210. This is a guy who not only has fought in uh, three different weight classes, welterweight, middleweight, and light heavyweight. This is a guy who fought Tito Ortiz at the War of 04, uh, UFC 50, back when the UFC was still given these things names. And I encourage you to look at the Wikipedia pages so you can see the event poster for this one and just see what a very different time it was. Uh, but about 15 years in the game uh, for Patrick Cote and just... No real big fanfare about it. Just kind of after he loses the decision, takes off the gloves, said one way or another that was going to be it for him, uh, and just kind of quietly goes off, which I guess is the way you'd expect Patrick Cote to do it. I'm just saying we'd be remiss if we did not mention the the toughness and the fan-friendly fighting style of Patrick Cote all these years, even in this fight where he could get just nailed with a huge hard shot, knock down, and pop right back up and start throwing again. It just feels like in the great long city bus ride of MMA, more and more dudes I know are getting off than are getting on. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm just saying I like to look at uh, a grizzled veteran, a veteran of, of uh, well, almost 35 fights for Patrick Cote, and then be like, oh, yeah, he's two years younger than me. <laughs> that's what I like. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC on Fox. And then do we have the, uh, is the Cub Swanson Artem Lobo fight the very next week? Oh God, I hope it do, is. Do we get another break after this? We might need a break just to catch our breath before that one. Cause it's going to be nope. April 22nd. Oh, so that'll be uh, the week after featuring Al Quinta versus Diego Sanchez and Oven St. Prue versus Marcos Rogerio de Lima. So we're going to have a lot to talk about there. Yeah, of course we will. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. The thing about looking like a 70s porn star, there's a dude at my gym who looks like he actually, like he's old enough that he actually could have been a 70s porn star, and he's still rocking the same look, which makes you wonder, what's going to become of, like, all the, like, bald dudes with tribal armband tattoos in 30 years? It's going to be awesome. When we're all in the old folks' home, we're in our sagging khaki pants, we're covered in tattoos, jump around comes on and everybody's like oh.